Yeah, thank you guys, worship team. Ryan on the banjo, fantastic. We'll get him some dungarees and a rocking chair and it'll just, it'll just be perfect. <laughs> With some whooping and hollering. Speaking of which, isn't it a good time to be British? As if we had anything to do with it. It's just, isn't it funny? We're like, oh yeah, we've won. We've won nothing. But it's great. Even better, Australia are doing badly. So, um, Just to say, it was great as well to pray um, earlier in the week for Ken and for Sam, both friends of ours who are going through tough times with chemotherapy. Um, thank you for those who came out to pray. Thank you for those who are praying. Please keep praying. Please keep looking out as well for kind of odd dates we might throw in and say, come on, let's gather together to pray. It's important. It's significant. You know, we have living testimony in the room that God heals cancer and God loves to heal. And um, so um, please, when you hear about these meetings, do grab hold of them and uh, do come along if you can. So, as Peter says, over the summer we are looking at the Lord's Prayer. Let's remind ourselves of that most famous passage. Sorry, I'm playing with this. Perhaps the most well-known passage in Scripture. Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13. This is Jesus talking. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Over these six weeks of the summer, we will look at each of these six sections in turn. Last week, Pete spoke to us about the context of this passage. He then spoke about that first section he began by talking about the, the address to it, to whom the prayer should be offered, our Father in heaven, that gives us this unifying and heavenly perspective while we're on earth. He then looked at the beginning statement as we seek that God's name would be glorified and honoured, not just through our prayers, but through our lives. And this may seem really obvious, but by the end of these six weeks, I want all of our prayer lives to have improved. Because we all, I'm sure, realise how important prayer is. Few of us, if any, would doubt the power and the necessity of prayer in the life of the believer. And yet few of us, again, perhaps if any of us, could truly say that we are entirely happy with our own prayer life as it is right now. All of us, I'm sure, even feel some perhaps sense of guilt about our prayer life, knowing that it could and should improve massively. Hence the desire to look at this passage together as a church. Please see it more than just some fun summer interlude to kind of pass six weeks till we get to the real sermon series again in September. My prayer for this time is that my prayer life would grow. I pray that your prayer for this time is that your prayer life would grow as well, that it would mature and advance as we look at Jesus' answer to that request from the disciples, Lord, teach us how to pray. You know, for the Jews of the day listening to Jesus in that first century, their great danger, especially over the area of prayer, was religion. You know, the greatest desire was in those days to be known as a religious person or religious leader. You know, when you look through the Gospels and you keep seeing that title religious leader being used, and we always now see it quite in a negative sense, don't we, as a, you know, a bit of a, a bad label. But in those days, that would be the greatest badge of honour anyone to be called a religious leader. That's what they all aimed for. And so when Jesus spoke about prayer, he spoke in the context of people 
who wanted to be seen as religious before men and were unconcerned with how God felt. That isn't the great danger of our time in 21st century Britain. Very few of us want to look religious. Our great danger, especially concerning prayer, is materialism. We are so used to getting what we want, when we want it, and we carry that into our relationship with God and our prayer life. And we forget that the primary purpose of prayer is not to get stuff that we want, as if God doesn't know what we need already. Jesus says, your Father in heaven already knows what you need. As if he's somehow unaware that you've just lost your job. As if he somehow didn't notice that you haven't got any food to feed your children. As if he missed the fact that you've been ill for the last few weeks. God knows those things. The primary purpose of prayer is that our relationship with God would grow and that he would get greater praise. That is why we pray. And it's very important to note the order of these prayers. It begins with God, his worship, his glorification, his will before we launch into the things that we want. Sadly, if we're being honest, most, most of our prayers are probably heavier on the God I need rather than God be glorified. And we all know this, don't we? And yet we still struggle to live it out. Our prayers life is often more about, Lord, I need this, Lord, I need that, and Lord, I need this. And then we wonder why our prayer life isn't what we know it should be. But when we get them in the right order, the right way around, as Jesus taught us, not only God gets more glory, but also we find our prayers become more effective because they're prayed in the right context, the context of an almighty God, context of a king on a throne. And when we begin our prayers, as Jesus taught us, with him, his majesty, his power, his sovereignty, we then find it easier to find faith for the other stuff. Often our prayers aren't very faith-filled, they're not very expectant, We pray for small things, and even those things we're not really expecting God always to do. I was thinking about this recently when we were thinking about praying for healing. You know, often I must admit that my prayers, when when I know someone's unwell, I pray that they would know God's peace and they would know his love. And they are two good things for a person who is sick to know. Don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to pray those things. We should do that. But why haven't I got faith just to say, God, heal them? You know, when Jarius came to Jesus, he didn't ask for peace about the fact that his daughter was dying. He asked for his daughter to be healed by Jesus, and Jesus healed her. When the, boy, when the father of the boy with the evil spirit came to Jesus, he wasn't just asking for a bit of peace just to deal with the situation better. He was wanting Jesus to heal that boy. What the great thing is that both fathers received both those things as well. They received peace in their heart about the situation. They knew God's love even more, and also they had a healed child. And I wonder if we do struggle a bit in our prayers because we skip those first bits and jump to the petition bit. Our prayers can be always about what we want and the things that we need, and they're not placed in the context of an almighty God and the sovereignty of God. And we miss hearing God's opinion on the subject, and we miss out on the faith that rises when we remember who we're praying to. So today we're considering three words from this. We're going to consider that phrase, your kingdom come. In the previous statement, we have prayed that God's name would be glorified, that it would be honored and hallowed in the world. But the reality is, if we look around the world, it doesn't take a moment to realize that most people don't hallow his name at all. In fact, the majority of people don't glorify God and don't even want to glorify God. 
You know, it isn't that everyone in the world is like that Romans 7 guy who wants to do the right thing, but just finds his sinful nature rising up. He wants to honor God, but he can't. They don't even want to honor God. And why is that? Well, the second phrase gives us the answer. Because there is another kingdom at work in the world. There's another king. The reason that most people don't hallow God's name is that they aren't part of his kingdom. And so for us to expect them to honour God is a bit like to expect our British Olympic athletes to get all teary and sing along at the Chinese national anthem. It's just not going to happen. So this prayer is is to ask that God's kingdom would advance over and through and in into the kingdom of this world. A kingdom that promises so much but delivers little. A, pro- a, a, a kingdom of the world that, promise, that claims freedom even. Again, if you watch that opening ceremony, I thought it was, I thought it was quite funny that you know, the countries that are the least democratic put democratic in their title. The Democratic Republic of Korea, and you're thinking that must be South. North Korea, really? You know, arguably the most oppressive regime in the world. And if you remember East Germany, East Germany was called the Deutsche, the German Democratic Republic, as if it was democratic in any way. It's a bit like when China came out and you expect China to have on their board, if they're being honest, the communist, you know, repressive, totalitarian empire of China. But instead, what do they call themselves? The People's Republic of China. As if the people own any of that nation or that republic, if indeed it is a republic. That is the same as the kingdom of this world. It claims to be free, it claims to be fair, it claims to be just. But the king of this world makes that an impossibility. Jesus said in John 10.10, that thief comes only to, to kill, steal and destroy and lie. Whereas he says, I've come that you may have life and life to the full. So when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying that a kingdom of light, truth, freedom and joy would invade and overcome and destroy a kingdom of darkness, lies and slavery. So today, this is a plan. Today, I want to talk a little bit about more about this new and different kingdom. Then I want to expand that phrase for our own prayer life. Obviously, I'm, I'm sure you realize that this model prayer was never intended to be it in terms of our prayers. That was never meant to be the entirety of our prayers, but really that they would be like a skeleton for that prayer. That Jesus has given us the key ingredients that will ensure that our prayers are offered in the right attitude and the right way. So what did Jesus mean when he said, pray your kingdom come? And actually, I want us to begin considering that by imagining what those first listeners would have been taught about the kingdom of God. You know, so when Jesus said to these people, these disciples and the crowd around them, your kingdom come, I want to remind ourselves of what they would have heard when Jesus said that. Because Jesus spoke a huge amount about the kingdom. I could spend hours and hours talking about the kingdom of God. He spent more time on the kingdom than any other subject. But instead, I want to summarize what he meant by it by comparing it to what those first listeners would have heard when Jesus spoke those first words. So to a first century Jew, so the ones who asked the question, the one who heard that first response, the kingdom of God was about four things. Firstly, the punishment of the wicked, i.e. Israel's enemies. The arrival and the reign of God's promised Messiah. The freedom for the nation, the permanent establishment of a new nation under God. And Jesus turned those perceptions upside down in his teaching. 
Or rather, their understanding was upside down and he turned it the right way up. Because Jesus said, actually, you know what? The arrival kingdom is about the punishment of the wicked. But they're not just the Roman invaders. You know, to this highly religious Jewish nation, sin was something else in other nations. Sin was something that other people did. Whereas they knew that they were righteous by virtue of their ancestors. Which seems strange when you consider all that New Testament prophecy, which I know I'm currently slogging through, isn't always as inspiring as I think when you go through the Bible and you get to Isaiah and it's judgment after judgment after judgment. And you would have thought, having had all that in their scriptures, they would have kind of got the hint that it wasn't just about the Greeks or the Romans, it was about themselves. That the problem isn't out there, the problem is in our hearts. In fact, it's in all hearts. Jew, Roman, Gentile, Greek, or even British. And so the kingdom is indeed about punishment of the wicked, only Romans 3 tells us there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. Those first listeners who heard that first prayer didn't realize that sin was the big problem, not the Romans. And we too must admit that the kingdom of God begins with the confession of our own sin, because Romans says that we are the wicked. And then it's the request of God's forgiveness, rather than pointing fingers at other people who we feel have sinned more than us our parents, our neighbours, our co-workers, our fellow believers. So they were right as well. Second point, they, they, you know, the kingdom was indeed ushered in with the arrival of the promised Messiah. Jesus himself announced that. In Luke 4, in a synagogue in Nazareth, he read from Isaiah 61, which was about the promised Messiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord has anointed me. Then he goes into the signs of the kingdom. Good news preached to the poor, freedom for the captives, sight to the blind, the release of the oppressed then says that Jesus, standing up, he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. And then he sat down and it says all the eyes of the synagogue were on him. Oh, you can imagine it would be. What's he done? He's turned around and said, that prophecy is all about me. Everyone, of course, they're going to be looking at him. Basically, Jesus turned around and says, I'm the promised one. I am the Messiah. And yet we see... unlike their expectations that the Messiah was rejected and not welcomed. This Messiah would be mocked and not honoured. He did indeed would come into his glory, but it would come through a cursed cross. No one saw that one coming. This Messiah would indeed be the son of David, as everyone believed, who would inherit the throne of, of David, yet he would also be the son of Joseph, who would be rejected by his brothers and would reach the throne, but he'd reach it through the dungeon. Jesus said as well, this kingdom was about freedom. God's kingdom is about freedom, but not in a geographic sense, as they believed. And often, actually, his freedom comes in the midst of great oppression around us. In fact, it seems like the church grows even more when this regime is most oppressive. The church grew fastest during the times of Roman persecution than any other times. While the church father, Tertullian, could say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. They just found that when they were persecuted most, the church grew even more. We see it in modern history, where the, where the rights are taken away. There is the greatest oppression in places like Korea and China and Nigeria and Iran. You find the church is growing even more. God's kingdom is breaking out even more. Jesus was saying, actually, God's kingdom is about a spiritual freedom, a lightness in our spirit, as Dave Bilber wrote in his song, I Am A New Creation. It's a freedom not from the tyranny of man, but the greater and eternal tyranny of sin and death. 
And it isn't that we shouldn't pray for social justice and physical freedom. We, 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 we want that. God wants that as well. But God is focused more on a greater freedom to come about through his kingdom. God's kingdom is about freedom to know God in Christ. His kingdom is about freedom to worship him and thereby fulfill the greatest longing in our heart. His kingdom is about freedom from slavery to sin. That's the kind of freedom Jesus spoke about in his kingdom. And that's the kind of thing we should be praying for. And as they believed, they were right. It was about the permanent establishment of a new nation under God. But what they didn't see is that that nation would be made up of all the nations of the world. Isaiah prophesied about this moment in Isaiah 49.8. Speaking about the Messiah, the father says to the son, it is too small a thing for you to, rest- to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And this new nation, this new kingdom under God, this nation under God, wouldn't be limited to one language group or one people group. It wouldn't be limited by lines drawn on a map. It would be dynamic, not geographic. It would touch not areas of land, but that most precious real estate, the human heart. And this nation would not come about by the destruction or the the battle victory over the Romans or the Greeks or whoever, but actually it would come through the death of the Messiah himself so that everyone could be part of this kingdom because they've known the forgiveness of sin through the substitutionary punishment of the Son. So that all peoples from all nationalities could enjoy fellowship with their Father in heaven. Or rather, our Father in heaven, as Pete went to pains to explain last week. I love the fact they weren't wrong, they just saw things too small. So when Jesus first said, your kingdom come, actually, they were pretty much on the thought what they believed. They just didn't imagine the scale of what God was doing and what God's kingdom would really be about. This kingdom would be more glorious than even the best heroes of faith could ever imagine in the Old Testament. That is just a brief introduction to what the kingdom is about. Sadly, I don't have time to go into the specifics of how that comes about, all the good things that comes about with it. Hopefully, it's a beginning to stir in your mind, actually, your kingdom come is kind of a good thing for us to be praying. But as I said before, this prayer of Jesus was never supposed to be it. It wasn't ever supposed to be the only thing that we prayed. It wasn't supposed to be recited endlessly, but rather used as a basis for the order and the intention of our prayers. Jesus hasn't given us a creed to be repeated over and over again, but rather he's given us a template on how we should pray. Very sad to see Christians who simply memorize it and recite it rather than using it as that template that Jesus designed it to be. So how, sh- how, you know, how should these three words stir our praying? Let me focus on the areas in which we should be praying for the kingdom of God to come. So when we say, Lord, let your kingdom come, I want to give you four areas that we should focus our prayers in to bring that about. Firstly, we should be praying your kingdom come in ourselves. We begin with ourselves with that prayer. We must begin with ourselves in our own hearts, our personal surrender and repentance. You know, the Pharisees believed that if the whole nation didn't sin for 24 hours, then the kingdom of God would be ushered in. That was their genuine belief, which is why they put regulation after regulation, because they wanted the kingdom of God to come. And to give them their fair due, we don't know if they're right or wrong. They never got to that point. Never got to a point where a nation didn't sin for 24 hours, so we never knew if they were right or wrong. But they were... 
it's, it's the Pharisee in us that believes actually the problem is somewhere else more than it's with us. There was a guy called Alexander Solzhenitsyn who lived, um, well, he died about sort of 20 years ago, but lived in the last century. And uh, a Russian, Russian writer and a soldier. And he probably saw more evil in his life than any one of us ever will. His parents worked hard to buy their own farm, which was then seized by the government and turned into a collective farm by the Soviet government. Despite being decorated twice as a soldier in World War II, he was um, arrested for making derogatory comments against Stalin in a letter to a friend. He was beaten and then imprisoned for eight years uh, with hard labor in the gulags. And yet, listen to what he said and wrote. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. You know, despite suffering more than any one of us probably will because of evil, he could still, as a Christian, see that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man aren't lines drawn between nations or estates in a town or even between houses in a road or even between family members in a family. That line runs straight through the human heart. Which is why, actually, saying that phrase, your kingdom come, isn't the best um, language to use. And I don't think, actually, it was entirely the wording that Jesus was using when he first spoke those words. A better translation isn't kingdom, but rather God's rule. So we should be praying, Lord, let your rule be done. Let your rule come about. Because otherwise, it's very easy for us to state, well, God owns my heart. You know, I gave it to him 30-odd years ago. It's his. This kingdom, this area of real estate belongs to him. When really Jesus was getting at the kingdom of God is anywhere in the world where God is sovereign. Where him taking the throne isn't just some one once-in-a-lifetime event, but rather it's a daily occurrence. I'm sure that we can look back in the history of this nation and say that, you know, three centuries ago we dedicated ourselves to God. That doesn't mean that now we can say this is the kingdom of God, this is the kingdom of heaven, because it's a daily decision. God, be the boss today. God, take the throne in my life. God, you rule in my life. That's what Jesus Jesus is talking about, God's rule. He's talking about living our lives in total obedience to the will of the Father. He's wanting us to get to that place that he reached where he could say in John 15, 9, he says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. What a statement that is. Later in John 8, 28, he says, I only speak what the Father tells me to speak. That is God's kingdom come fully in a man. Inviting God's kingdom to come is saying, my acts are only what the king wants me to do. My words, how hard that is. My words are only the words the king wants me to speak. It's a big thing to pray. And then if we're being honest, in our more honest moments, we must admit, actually, there are two kingdoms at work in our lives. Though, if saved, we are thoroughly and eternally saved. We have been wonderfully brought into his kingdom of light, yet we still invite aspects of the old kingdom back into our heart. Hence, it is vital that we begin this prayer with ourselves. Asking God to help us to seek to bring his rule and reign in our lives, in our hearts, in our motives, in our words. So when you pray this phrase, begin with yourselves. Ask yourselves some questions. 
Like, what aspects of the kingdom do I struggle with most? Maybe it's grace, maybe obedience, maybe kindness, patience, huge one, generosity, compassion, good, kind speech. Ask yourself the question, in what parts of my life do I still struggle to give God the rule and reign? Maybe it is at school for you. Maybe it's in your office or your workplace. Maybe it's amongst that group of friends when you're at the pub with them or when you're out with them. Maybe it's with your family at home you struggle most. At what moments do I most easily slip back into the old way of the old kingdom? Is it when I hold that scepter of power, the TV remote? Is it when I hold that orb of authority, the computer mouse? When, when does God not get the rule and reign in your life? That's where it begins. And having begun with ourselves, let's widen it just a little bit. Secondly, let's pray for the, kingdom, the coming of the kingdom in us, his church, his body. You know, I think so often we devalue the place of the church in God's redemptive plan. Perhaps you see church as a kind of a heavenly waiting room, you know, where the chosen just get to, you know, wait out heaven. Perhaps we just see it as just some life raft after the world, the Titanic has sunk and we're just surviving, you know, huddling together a little bit. And, you know, we might pick up the odd survivor from time to time, but mostly we're just, we're just waiting it out for salvation. Maybe you see it as just a, a refuge, a hiding place from the world where you come and hide and be yourselves before God for a couple of hours a week. But God's view of us is very different, infinitely more glorious than ours. Because he wants his church to be the great demonstration of his kingdom. He wants the world to have the best view of what a kingdom is like through us, his body. When people want to know what the kingdom of God is about, I think God's expectations is that they would be able to look at the church and say, ah, that's what it looks like. You know, Hebrews calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God is like, if you want to see God, you look at Jesus. I believe as well that God would say that the church is the image of the invisible kingdom. That the church, the local church and the global church should be the image of the invisible kingdom. If people want to know what the rule of Christ looks like and is like, they look at the church. Now, unlike with Jesus, the image will never be perfect, but it still should be there. It may be like a faded black and white photograph image. It should still be there. We Christians are meant to be this window into that brave new world, that new kingdom. And yet more often we blacken one side and make it a mirror to make the world look bad and us feel smug. You know, the church is on earth to live out the gospel of the kingdom coming. We are here to live out the values of this kingdom, to talk about the benefits, to tell the world that although there is a completeness to come, actually you come into God's kingdom and you will know fullness in your soul. So when you pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, begin with yourself, then continue with us. God, help us to better extend and reflect the kingdom of God today. Pray that we might see captives set free through this church. Pray that we might see and know the healing power of God's kingdom. Pray that through the global church and this local church, the eyes and ears will be opened, that the mute will be able to praise God, that the lame will be able to leap for joy for God. 
pray that through us, prison doors would be flung open and prisoners would walk free. Pray that addicts would find complete and full healing. Pray that families would be reunited and marriages restored through this church. God, help us from just praying for ministries when really actually they're a vehicle to the kingdom of God. You know, I don't know about you, but when I go on holiday, I don't focus my attention solely on the car that gets me there. I don't drive to Cornwall and sit in my Vauxhall Sophia and think, isn't this a lovely holiday? I get out and enjoy the beach. having thanked the car because I'm quite appreciative of that. So often we think, well, the car's it. The ministries are it. No, we don't just pray for a great kid's work just so we can say we have a great kid's work. We pray that the kingdom of God would come through that work. We don't just pray for an alpha course That's because that's what free churches do. No, we pray that the kingdom of God would advance through that ministry. We don't pray for great worship, great preaching, great fellowship, great small groups, just as an end in themselves. We pray that the kingdom of God would advance through those ministries. Amen. So having prayed for God's rule in our own hearts, we prayed for in his church, then we can widen it a little bit. We can pray for the coming of the kingdom in others. This is where the Pharisees would have jumped straight in. They'd have gone straight to number three. You know, they had so many regulations, they were thoroughly convinced. Number one, they were sorted. Number two, God's people, you know, were their descendants of Abraham. Of course, they're sorted. But we aren't like them, are we? Are we? Are we? Well, let's make sure that we aren't. Let's be careful we don't slip into the... Um, Well, I went to church this week, so uh, God's rule is pretty secure in me. I managed to squeeze some Bible study into that advert break, so I think God's pretty impressed with how I'm going this week. Don't get me wrong. God loves these times. God loves times where we gather as a people and worship him. They're precious. God loves times that we steal from the world in Bible study and devotion during the week. They're precious to him, but he's he's after more than that. He's after your heart. All of it, all the time. So let's ensure that we pray for God's rule in our hearts as well as in the church and then we can pray in all the nations. So what, how do we, what do we pray? When we pray for the advance of the kingdom, what things do we pray for? Healings, yes. Provision, yes. Blessings, yes. Fruit, yes. Most importantly, the big thing to pray is for salvation. When you pray for God's kingdom to come in others around us, Pray for salvation. Ultimately, the kingdom of God is about a relationship with the king. So when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, we are asking the king to reveal himself to others and to bring in elements of that kingdom. You know, we often see, when we think about salvation, we often think of it as just the receiving of blessings, don't we? And that's, that's kind of how it's presented in the uh, UK, particularly today. And then we get surprised when people don't accept Christ. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want their mistakes erased forever? When given the option, who would think, well, actually, you know what? That freedom sounds mighty enticing. I'm going to stick with my prison cell. Thank you very much. Or who, given the option, you know, well, actually, you know what? I think I'll pay the fine. You know, I know you want to let me off, but tell you what, I want justice to be done. Let me pay my money to pay the fine. And we imagine people doing it that way. But we must never forget when we're praying for these things, that salvation begins with surrender. To live with Christ begins with dying to self. And that's why P3 
people would rather choose slavery over freedom. That is why apparently smart atheists would rather risk eternal punishment rather than seek the truth, because it begins with us admitting that we got it wrong. Salvation, the kingdom comes as we surrender our wills to God. It comes as we descend from our throne and say, perhaps for the first time, your kingdom come, God. Your will be done instead of mine. Your kingdom come instead of mine. That's what salvation is. That's what surrender is. And just as a word to some people here today, maybe you would call yourself a Christian because you've come to church to enjoy the benefits. You know, nice time of worship, make you feel better. You know, go away on a Sunday afternoon feeling you've done some business. The belief that your sins are forgiven and you've got a ticket to heaven. I mean, they're great benefits. But we have, if we haven't surrendered our will and our life to Christ, we're not saved. Because it says that salvation is found in no other name. Right, uh, Acts uh, 4.12 says salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, that by, sorry, under heaven given to men by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. You know, the name of the church, even BFC cannot save. I cannot save. Alpha cannot save. Our parents' cannot, name cannot save. Only Jesus can save. And that comes as we deny ourselves. We pick up our cross and we follow Jesus to the place of execution of our own self. And we truly say in our hearts, your kingdom come. That's what salvation is all about. So it is good indeed. As number three, it's good to pray for others to come to that place of surrender. But actually, that's why praying the other two first is so important. Let them see in us a surrender that is worth the price that we have to pay. Let us be like those first soldiers who are laying down our arms in the face of an unbeatable force. Let them see in us a completeness about our submission. Let them see that that completeness in submission doesn't lead to being a life of religious weakness, but actually it means life to the full. Let them see that us surrendering our throne to God's throne hasn't made us the killjoy of the party. But actually, we know life to the full. We know joy. Let others see in us that giving up of our will was the very best decision that we ever made. Not something that we are ashamed of and we hide away on Sunday mornings. Let this church indeed be the very life of this village. Let our worship be so joyful and so true that others want to see what we are about. Come on, let's be honest. In the last week, more, some of us have got more excited on TV screen about some bloke running around a track than we have about God. Okay, I, I admit it. I've shouted more and got more excited about gold medals there than in my personal devotion time. And that's what the world sees. They see more excitement and joy on a football field and a football stadium on a Sunday morning than they see in his church. Help them see that surrender and salvation is the best option. So when you pray for the kingdom of God to come, begin with your own heart. Then pray for it amongst the body of believers, then amongst the people around us. And there's just one more area that I want us to think about when we focus, sorry, one more area that I think we should also focus on in, in our prayers, and that is fourthly for the final and complete coming and arrival of the kingdom of God. You know, within each believer's heart, there is a longing. I think that there is a longing for a, the full and final coming of God's kingdom. There's a cry in our hearts, or there should be a cry in our hearts like that of John in the final verse of the Bible where he says, Come, Lord Jesus, come. 
In the believer's heart, there is a passion to see Christ come in glory, for all eyes to see who he really is. For all tongues to confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord, as we have confessed. For all knees to bow before the true king, as we have bowed our knees. And I think as well that this can, and I think this well should be part of that, Lord, you let your kingdom come prayer. Now, we must be careful, of course, not to take this to unhelpful level. In the church in Thessalonica, there were some people who quit their jobs and just waited out the return of Christ as if nothing else mattered. Yeah, we want our eyes fixed on Jesus, but we also want to be useful while we're here on earth. But even as we cry out for the mission and the lost to be redeemed, even as we cry out for our friends and family to find Jesus while there is still time, there should actually, I think, be a greater longing in our hearts for God's kingdom to come in its entirety. As you probably know, we we are currently living in the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom is here, but not yet complete. Jesus is king, but he has yet to assert his sovereignty completely. Not because he's able, not because he's trying to will up enough power to get the job done, but because he wants others to come to him whilst the window is still open. And yet even as we kind of hold those kind of competing emotions in a way, I still think our great prayer should be, Lord, come in glory. You know, we have a secondary love, that is the lost and the mission. Our first and primary love is Jesus Christ to be revealed, for him to be known as he really is, for him to be, to receive the praise that we know he deserves. And we pray, come and bring complete and final release for your people. Lord, come in your glory. Come and receive the praise that we know you deserve. Come and set us free from this corrupt and sinful generation. Come and set us free from the war that wages in our very own hearts. Come set us free from infirmity and disease, pain, loss and grief. Come like that moment in Revelation 11 where it says that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and our Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That should be in our Lord, your kingdom come. Let our prayer be, Lord, initiate that great work you promised in Isaiah 65, where you said, I behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind, where the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Within that prayer, there should be a stirring as well. Lord, we long to see what John saw in Revelation 21, where he saw the new heavens and the new earth. He saw the holy city, the the, the The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. We want to see and we want to experience that place where it says the dwelling of God is now with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. There should be a cry in our hearts, a longing, say, Lord, begin that time where you wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Where the old order of things has passed away. That is all part. Your kingdom come. That's what we're praying for. Robert Murray McShane wrote a a poem about that coming of the moment. When this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking over life's finished story. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. Off the nights of sorrow rain, weeping, sickness, sighing, pain. But a night thine anger burns, morning comes, and joy returns.
Um, Matt Redmond, the songwriter, transformed that poem into a song, some of you may know, called Endless Hallelujah. And it just kept coming to mind when I was just thinking about this fourth bit, the, the final and complete arrival of the kingdom of God. No more tears, no more shame, no more sin or sorrow ever known again, no more fears, no more pain. We will see you face to face and we will worship. Forever in your presence we will sing, we will worship an endless hallelujah to the king. When you pray for God's kingdom to come, when you pray your kingdom come, have that moment in mind. When you pray your kingdom come, think about what it will be like when it comes in its entirety. Consider that time that is without pain, without suffering, without grief or loss or fear or doubt or loneliness or infirmity. Consider that moment where of that time of fullness where we will live and work and worship in complete joy and peace. Consider that moment where the king is truly among his people. Firstly, because it will place all our other issues in context. But secondly, it will inspire us to pray for more of those things here on earth today. You know, understanding the um, now and not nature, now and not yet nature of the kingdom shouldn't make us passive. You're praying for someone, oh, you're not healed. Well, I guess that's kind of the not yet of the kingdom, isn't it, really? Praying for someone, oh, you're not happy, you're not healthy. Well, you know, the kingdom's not yet. No, rather we should give ourselves to the continuing growing of the now of the kingdom. You know, when you catch a glimpse of that moment, it will fire your prayers for God's kingdom to be known here on earth as it is in heaven. It will fire your prayers that the kingdom would come as it is known by the saints of the past, the loved ones that we know have died in Christ, who are now enjoying the fullness of that. The thing that we will all see and enjoy when, when those who have surrendered to life, to our throne to God's in this life. Your kingdom come. It's more than just a few words to be recited. It is the fulfill, it's a longing to be fulfilled. Don't just robotically dictate those three words. Let those words stir in your heart uh, a desire to seek his rule and reign in our own lives. Let those words stir in you a desire and that vision stir in you a desire to see more of God's kingdom in the life of this church. And then, yeah, as you see that vision of God's glory and that kingdom to come, let it stir in you a, uh, a desire to see God's kingdom come in the lives of other people, those nearest and dearest to us. Your kingdom come ultimately. Let it inspire us to pray that God's kingdom would come in its entirety when we will really and fully see life as it was meant to be. Your kingdom come, Lord. Let me pray. Your kingdom come, Lord Jesus. Lord, they're just three words. Lord, we could recite them robotically, time and again. We could turn them into like a talisman, like a kind of a good luck charm. If I say these things, then it will come about. Better still, let us use it as a, an inspiration. Let the vision of what your kingdom will be like in its fullness stir in us, a desire to see God's rule and reign 
in our own lives, in our own hearts. Let the vision of what your kingdom is all about stir in us a passion to see your church demonstrate the kingdom in this world. Lord God, let it stir in us a a passion to see surrender and salvation in those around us. God, Let it drive us in our evangelism. Let it drive us in the way we are around people. That they may know that the surrender that we made was the best decision we ever made. That when we first declared, Lord, your kingdom come, that was the best thing we ever did. And Lord, we do echo John's prayer in Revelation. Lord Jesus, come. Come in glory. King, come and reign fully. In us and in this world, come and reign. Come take the place that you deserve. Come take the place that you won through your obedience to the cross and to the Father. You deserve it, Lord. You deserve the very best. You deserve every tongue declaring that you are Lord. You deserve every need to bow before you. You deserve the praise of the universe. Amen.